Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I want to take time to look over the life of Frederick Douglass. Uh, this is a man who today, right, in, in our day, uh, occupies a big place in our thinking of the 19th century. Became, Of course, he was a great abolitionist, a former slave, uh, a deeply committed Christian, friend of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, but really, his his uh, his star shines more brightly today than it did in the 19th century. Um, he was a firm believer in the equality of all peoples, uh, white, black, female, Native American, Chinese immigrants. He was a believer in dialogue and making alliances across racial and ideological divides. Um, he once said that... Uh, he would unite with anybody in the right and with nobody in the wrong. This was a man of extraordinary influence, even in his own era. He found faith in Christ as a slave. His later, uh, first of his three autobiographies, uh, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, published in 1845, was a bestseller. 30,000 copies uh, in the first five years of his life. It was an incredibly important book. Now, what's interesting about Douglas is that he retained his faith in spite of a very extraordinary sensitivity to injustice. He could listen—there's uh, a great line of his where he says, "...the slave auctioneer's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other, and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master." Uh, the slaveholder fills church coffers with gold, and in turn, the pastor covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. So this was a man quite capable of distinguishing between the Christianity of the culture and the uh, Christianity of Christ. Well, I'm glad to say that we actually have a, a historian who has given a tremendous amount of attention to this dimension, the spiritual dimension of Douglas's life. And my guest, Dr. D.H. Dilbeck, is a historian living in my hometown of New Haven, Connecticut, and is the author most recently of Frederick Douglass, America's Prophet. D.H., good to make your acquaintance. And you as well. Thank you for having me for this conversation. Douglass is, is I think, really a fascinating, a fascinating man. He came to faith in Christ while still a slave? That's correct, yeah. How does that how does that happen? I'm just curious, like the psychology of that. Yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable story, really. He had grown up in rural Maryland, hearing a pro-slavery gospel preached by white evangelical ministers. Mm -hmm. Slaves, you need to submit to your masters. That sort of message. Sure. But he lived for a time as a young teen in Baltimore, and it was in Baltimore that he began to sort of run in uh, circles, make friends with a group of black Methodists, and, and began to attend services at black Methodist con congregations. Uh, these were congregations that were usually made up of both uh, free and enslaved African Americans living in, in Baltimore. Mm. And it was, it was there, really, that he I think, recognized or, or, or sort of encountered directly for the first time that there was um, more to the Christian faith and more to the message of Christ than the version that he had heard mm -hmm. preached by pro-slavery ministers that, yeah. that 
this person, Christ, preached liberty to the captives, and uh, at the same time, he also was learning secretly to teach himself how to read, mostly by reading the Bible, and it was those two things together, learning to read, reading the Bible for himself, and and attending these uh, services at predominantly black churches that really um, set him on the path to, to a, a kind of classic evangelical con- sort of born-again conversion experience, really. Yeah. I, I often, thinking back in that era, today we think that uh, how how stupid could it have been for Christians to have supported slavery? So many Christians have supported slavery. Uh, and yet, there was a tremendous amount of biblical and theological support for the institution of slavery. And this was this wasn't just a you know a grabbing a single Bible verse and uh, uh, you know slaves obey your masters. There was a whole uh, edifice uh, of uh, that was just the edifice of slavery was justified by fairly elaborate appeals to uh, both scripture and theology, uh, right? I mean, this was this was not a small yeah. matter. <laughs> No, 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 that's absolutely right. Um, that's absolutely right. I mean, two, two points on that. I think it's important, to, to your first point, to appreciate that for most white Americans of Douglas's day, would have either uh, sort of enthusiastically supported slavery as a positive good or would have sort of quietly tolerated it, you know, accepted yeah. it not as an evil that needed eradicating. That's, that is the overwhelming majority of, of opinion. And and you're right, there is, uh, in, in this era, a very thoroughly developed biblical argument for slavery, drawing on both Old and New Testament passages. I mean, the, the, the argument at its sort of simplest and most, I think, I think powerful, though flawed, I would say, ultimately, but still nonetheless, um, went something like, this institution of slavery was clearly allowed in the Old Testament. Look, mm-hmm. to, the, uh, uh, the, look to what sort of God allows the ancient Israelites to do, and it's not explicitly prohibited in the New Testament. Neither Christ nor Paul speak directly against it, and Paul even and some of the epistles seem to tolerate its existence. So mm-hmm. therefore, what's sort of allowed in the Old Testament, not explicitly forbidden in the New Testament, should be allowed to continue. Now, right. I think that's a ultimately flawed, inaccurate right. biblical argument, but it was is one that had great power nonetheless in, in 19th century America. Yeah. Well, I, I, I remember in my own spiritual growth and development, I remember a, a, a disturbing moment back in the 19, late 1970s. I was reading a, a book called um, Slavery, Sabbath, War, and Women by, uh, I think the fellow's name was Willard Swartley. And it was an attempt to lay out biblical arguments on behalf of these various positions, both for and against. And I remember after concluding his section on slavery that I realized that given my approach to Scripture, I probably would have tolerated the institution of slavery simply asking slave masters to treat their slaves better than they normally would have. And that's terrible. That's a terrible feeling. Um, that's well, you've, <laughs> yeah, no, you've put your thumb on something really important, which is just that p- part of why that pro-slavery biblical argument had such power is that it fits so nicely with the way that most Americans read their Bible. Right. You know, you sort of take the letter of the text and read it literally. Yeah. You know, this, this sort of I, I think most 
sort of conservative Christians are one stripe or another, are maybe a little wary of imagining that we're going to kind of draw out these broad sweeping principles from Scripture and apply them, even if it's maybe doesn't, you can't reconcile it with the sort of particular letter of, of specific yeah. passages. And, and, and that, that was part of the appeal, I think, of this, of this biblical argument in, yeah. in Douglas's day. Now, Douglas had the, in a certain, <laughs> he had a certain interpretive advantage in that he had been a slave, and he was also living with a community of Christians that had seen beyond uh, any sort of biblical necessity for slavery. And that was critical in his own development, and also was critical for the maintenance of his faith, I would think. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think... To, to that to that latter point, it, it was certainly critical for him to see that there was more to this Christian faith than how it was practiced and preached by the white Southern slaveholders that he knew most well as a as a young man. And, and this is a tension that I think Douglas never fully escaped his right. whole life. He constantly had to confront it—a tension that, in, a, in effect, boiled down to: Are you going to? turn your back on this faith that you believe to be true mm -hmm. just because of the way that you see some of your contemporaries not only distort the faith, but use a distorted version of the faith to oppress and enslave other people. Mm -hmm. And and, and that, that that haunted Douglas in, in a way. I mean, if, it, if this faith is true, he was asking himself, how on earth could it be so easily distorted right. and corrupted? But, but nonetheless, he, he never went to the ultimate extreme of, of abandoning right. faith altogether. You know, I just realized I failed to give any—give us his dates, <laughs> his birth and death dates, so <laughs> we can contextualize them here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so he's, he's born uh, sometime, we're almost certain, sometime in February of, of, 20, er, of 1818. So he lived a long life, lived until 1895. So he, he really lived— wow. uh, Throughout the the most, I, I would say, momentous, remarkable, contentious era of American history. I mean, he was he was born into slavery when, in so many ways, it was at its social and economic high tide of its power. He lived through the political crisis leading up to the Civil War. Lived through the Civil War. Lived to see the end of slavery. Lived to see all the promises, the hopeful signs that came after the Civil War, the mm -hmm. end of slavery, the granting of civil and political rights to black Americans. But at the end of his life, he also lived to see the beginning of the system of Jim Crow, as we knew it in the 20th yeah. century, the denial of the right to vote, violence against black Americans, uh, uh, the sort of forcing them into, at times, almost slave-like systems of economic relationships, work arrangements, and the rest. So uh, he, lived, uh, he lived in an era of both... So great triumph and great hopeful progress, but also um, uh, real setbacks and continued trials as well. What what year was Plessy v. Ferguson that upheld segregation, the separate but equal idea of segregation? That was right around the time of his death, right? That's that's right. The, the year after his death, eighteen ninety six. Okay. Um, uh, which which really you know, you know the Supreme Court sort of giving the stamp of approval on, on this system of segregation that Douglas had lived to see to develop. Oh, that had to be a roller coaster ride, huh? 
<laughs> to have gone through Absolutely. all that he went through to see the Civil War, to see the the constitutional amendments, uh, to see the rise of the Klan afterwards, Reconstruction, and then uh, Jim Crow, as you say. And yet he retained uh, a faith in, in Christ uh, through all this. What... Um, what did he do after slavery? You know, how does he how does he find freedom? How is he how is he uh, what does he end up doing? Well, he as a relatively young man, he escapes from slavery. He's, he's in his early twenties, and he makes his way north, and he eventually catches the eye of abolitionist leaders, and his first real public career is on the abolitionist election okay. circuit, making some money, telling his story. D.H. Hold It There. We'll come back and continue the conversation. My guest is uh, Dr. D.H. Dilbeck, author of Frederick Douglass, America's Prophet. We're taking a look at really one of the cardinal figures in America's long uh, social development. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. D.H. Dilbeck, is the author of Frederick Douglass, America's Prophet. And we're taking a look at uh, Frederick Douglass, who, again, retained uh, a faith in Christ throughout his life, although his relationship to organized Christianity was deeply strained through the whole thing. So he had to make a clear distinction in his mind between the um, Christ of the Gospels and the Christ of much of organized Christianity uh, in America. So he uh, he escapes slavery, he gets on the uh, abolitionist circuit, and he becomes, uh, because of his own experience, because of his autobiography, he becomes a, a, a highly desired speaker, and he's, uh, he's an activist. I mean, basically, he's a professional activist at that point. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's how he makes a living. Um writing, speaking against slavery mm-hmm. in the decades leading up to the Civil War. Yeah. How was he perceived by, let's take somebody like Abraham Lincoln. That's a great question, and it, it's a question that reveals a lot about the era Douglas lived. D- Douglas met Lincoln on several occasions during the Civil War era. They're both members of the same party, Douglas's Republican Party. They're both anti-slavery in a broad sense of that word, but they're anti-slavery in, in two very, very different ways. I think the simplest way to appreciate the difference between them is to appreciate that Abraham Lincoln, from first to last, was a politician. <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean that in the best sense of the word. Sure, sure. And Douglas was a was a, a radical. He's a, he's an activist. He's and, a prophet. I mean, <laughs> I think that difference. In, he's a prophet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that that. Yeah, I mean, you could think of them as the prophet and the president, right? Way, and, and you can imagine how they how they might their their temperaments and their approach to uh, decisive political cultural issues might differ. They both believed deeply in their bones that slavery was an immoral institution. Lincoln, the political figure that he was, prudent in the best sense of that word, mm-hmm. cautious if you want to read it more cynically. Uh, was not as keen on moving as rapidly, immediately, decisively against slavery as someone like Douglas would have called for prior to the 
prior to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's more of a cautious temper temperament than that. Now, well, a lot of for a lot of complicated reasons that aren't necessarily worth getting into now. By the time the Civil War erupts and in the thick of the Civil War, they're they're on the basic same page about what can and should be done about about slavery. Okay. Uh, but but they they still have very different, I, I think, kind of temperaments and sort of moral outlooks. Almost, I would say, in that in that sense. Did Douglas believe that slavery could be abolished? Uh, without bloodshed. Well, he changed his mind on this. <laughs> I think to put it to put it simply, over over time, um, early in his life, he was um, more or less uh, both a pacifist and and what historians sometimes call a believer in in moral suasion. That mm-hmm. is sort of mm-hmm. if you can just kind of preach the truth of the immorality and evil of slavery, then the scales will fall from the eyes, so to speak, of slaveholders and their allies, and that they'll be sort of persuaded by the by the power of your moral message to sort of willingly abandon slavery. Now, that might seem naive, but that it's still kind of the, the belief that compels him to travel the abolitionist lecture circuit and make these anti-slavery speeches. By the decade or so just prior to the Civil War in the 1860s, Douglas comes less to believe in this. He, he comes to think that, however regrettable it might be, some kind of violence will in the end probably be necessary to ending uh, slavery. At times, he sort of flirted with the idea of, of maybe supporting violent insurrections on the part of slaves, so for the most part, he rejected that for both sort of principled and practical reasons. But I, I think he by the 1850s or so, came to believe that this sort of moral suasion approach to ending slavery was probably never going to work, and it would, mm-hmm. and it might in the end take some kind of cataclysmic violence, war even, to, to really see the end of the institution. How did he—do <clears throat> we know how he perceived the shift in slavery in the British Empire, you know, the, the abolition of the slave trade and then the abolition of slavery, which was done through— um, you know, a parliamentary uh, long, long fight, but it didn't. You didn't have the. You didn't have a civil war in the British Empire. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think Douglas was um, mindful of the important ways in which the American situation, the British situation, were were different. I mean, okay. I, th- I think the most important difference is the is the way in which slavery was not woven into the kind of social order at home in Britain by in the early 1800s in the way that it was in the United States. The, okay. the sort of British slavery is mostly slavery in the colonies, right? And so right, right. I think Douglas sees that the stakes are higher kind of socially and culturally for preserving slavery in America than it was in Britain. Uh, in that sense, he, I think he recognized it was going to be a different and harder fight in the United States. How did he regard somebody like uh, John Brown and his Brown's family? Uh, he, he knew John Brown. John Brown, the uh, notorious, uh, zealous uh, abolitionist figure himself. Um, Bra- he, Douglas was enamored by Brown in a lot of ways. I mean, he, he, he called him basically the most remarkable and courageous person he'd ever met. I mean, hmm. he, he thought Brown had a kind of inspiring zeal about him and his, and his righteous commitment to the abolitionist cause. Um, but in the end, Douglas disagreed with uh, the actions that we sort of most notoriously associate with Brown. That is, his the violence that he committed in service of 
the anti-slavery cause. This might be kind of vaguely familiar to, to some of your listeners, but, but Brown led a sort of violent attack against slaveholders in, in the Kansas and Missouri area territories. Uh, and, and then later, even more famously, on the very eve of the Civil War, attempted to lead an ultimately failed insurrection, violent uprising of slaves in uh, what was in Virginia, now West Virginia. Douglas was aware of that latter plan while Brown was uh, devising it, and Brown even asked Douglas to join him in the insurrection. And in the end, Douglas refused to do so. I mean, he, th- he thought it was a he thought it was practically never going to work that the yeah. insurrection would be put down, and that in the end it might just be counterproductive. That it would just kind of inspire more violence against right. slaves themselves. And so he, I, I think, the, what Douglas thought about Brown is revealing, in a sense, of kind of what he thought about violence more generally in service of anti-slavery cause. Could could you ever resort to violence to try to overthrow slavery? Douglas Douglas was that, that question tor- tortured Douglas. Yeah. I'm just curious, it, given how uh, terribly it failed, the raid on Harper, how did how, did Brown really think that that was going to be, be successful? I mean, if you have somebody like Frederick Douglass, right, advising you that this is not a good idea, you, you would think you'd think twice about doing it. And, and this was just a, 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 a terrible failure. Um, and, yeah. Well, yeah, if, if, if Douglass was a prophetic-like character, then Brown was almost the hyper-prophet. I mean, that Brown Brown believed that God had given him this divine mission that was fated to succeed to sort of purge this original sin, slavery from the United States. And mm-hmm. Doug, and Brown imagined that that what he started at Harper's Ferry would, would kind of light a fire that would spread throughout okay. the entire slaveholding South, and there would be kind of mass, spontaneous uprisings everywhere. Um uh, it, it obviously didn't turn out that way, right. but that, that, that's what he's envisioning happening. After the Civil War, uh, how does this has to be? A, I would think a hopeful period for Douglas. I mean, he he sees that the U.S. Congress is shifting. Uh, so, does he have a period of time where he's sanguine about the prospects for America? Uh, absolutely. I mean. The, for all the disheartening things that followed at the end of his life related to Jim Crow, mm-hmm. D- Douglas never lost sight of the fact that the end of slavery in America was a momentous moral triumph and yeah. radically changed the lives of those who had formerly been enslaved and, and of their children. And And he always, despite all the sort of concerns he had for the future and later developments, he always retained great satisfaction, joy in that development, the the end of slavery. So absolutely. I mean he he I I think from the moment the Civil War ended, he saw both the great possibilities but also the continued challenges that would await black Americans especially, but sort of await America confronting its its race problems. You know, in the last <clears throat> two years, three years, we've had a, 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 re, a rebirth of uh, publicly recognized racial tension in America, usually associated with violence, uh, police brutality, claims of police brutality anyways, against um, black citizens. How, how would, 
I mean, this is always hard to do. I understand. But I'm always, I would like to ask the question anyways. Well, if I could sit down with Frederick Douglass and interview him about this kind of thing, what do you think he'd tell me? Hmm. Well, I don't, I don't think he would be altogether surprised at the, at the problems and challenges that we're facing today. I, I, think, he would, I think he would see something familiar in them. Uh, in the end, I, I think what he, <laughs> without trying to speculate too specifically on how he might respond to particular problems we face, I think what he would do more than anything would be to try, as he did in his own day, to point us back to the political and religious ideals that Douglas himself held most dear and that, in many ways, most, or at least maybe a, uh, a plurality of Americans might continue to believe in most fervently the ideals that are built into the Declaration of Independence, especially the ideals built into the Judeo-Christian moral tradition. Um, all men are created equal. Mm-hmm. Do unto others as you will have them do unto you. I think Douglas believed that those were as good of North Stars as any for resolving uh, serious racial tensions and, in, and inequalities, that the that the problem wasn't with the sort of ideals upon which the nation was founded and claimed to cherish, but mm-hmm. the problem was with the inability to consistently live up to those ideals. I think, I think that's really the heart of why Douglas is a prophetic figure. He's calling us to live up to what we believe to be true. Well, uh, D.H., thanks for being with me today and for your work here. Uh, Frederick Douglass, America's Prophet, is the name of the book. And uh, I hope we can call on you again. This is a great conversation. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Again, the book is called Frederick Douglass, America's Prophet, D.H. Dilbeck.